So here we are, 2022. How did that happen? How did we get so far into the 21st century? How did we get to this day and to this new year? It seems to me at the dawn of a new year, it does us good to pause and reflect and to take account of those matters and concerns, those tenets, uh, the deeply held beliefs, uh, the central principles of our lives and of our faith. And so I'd like to spend uh, today and the next uh, two Sundays in a, a mini-series of uh, sermons on oneness. Uh, today, I'd like to uh, focus on our oneness with God. The Nativity, the Incarnation, the birth of Jesus, the promise of revelation is that God is coming to us. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. So today to focus on this idea about the oneness, the inherent oneness, the natural oneness that we share with God. Next week, uh, to focus on our oneness with all of creation. So often in our Western culture, and I think the prevailing view and worldview of our culture has been for millennia, that we are over and apart from, above nature. And it is for us to subdue and to use nature for our own ends. And we are now beginning to reap uh, the bitter fruits of that attitude and practice. So I'd like us to think about our natural, inherent oneness with nature. Uh, next week, that we are not apart from nature, we are part of nature. We are animals. Um, we're not above the animals or the insects or the fungi or anything else. We are part of nature. And then lastly, um, two weeks from today, on the 16th, on the eve of the national celebration of the birth of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, to think together about our oneness in humanity, our inherent connection with all people, the false distinctions that we make, the sinful use we have made of those distinctions to the subjection and the dehumanization of other people, raising ourselves up, casting others low, and using them um, for our own ends. So I think this oneness is so important uh, for us in these days. And it might be the way for us to capture some of the sense of joy that comes from that. I wrote in my letter in the Herald, I hope that this will be a year of joy for us. Joy, Tehar Desha Dance, and joy is the unmistakable, irrefutable evidence of the presence of God. That as difficult and as hard and as tested we may be, the presence of God, the fact that God is still working through everything and for everything and is loving and committed to us and to all creation, regardless of the ways in which we have wandered and been led astray, this is the cause of our joy, that we are not left alone, that we are not people without hope, 
for we have that great hope. Change is the one constant in our lives, of course, but beneath that change is the constancy of God's presence. This tells us a lot, I think, about the nature of God, that God is part of the change. That change is the evolution of God's purposes in the world. Sometimes the change, of course, is not positive. It's deeply negative and leads us further away from God. But in this season, this season of hope, of joy, let us focus on how God is coming to us and showing us a different way. I'd like to turn today uh, to Luke in the uh, second chapter. Luke is a uh, wonderful, well, they're all, the, all, all the Gospels are wonderful, of course, uh, but I think if, if I had to choose one Gospel uh, to have for the rest of my life, it would be the Gospel of Luke. For others, it's Mark, uh, Matthew, or John. Each of us, uh, for various reasons, are drawn to one text or another. But for me, Luke uh, provides such a thorough um, depiction of how Jesus fits into the long, this great sweep of salvation history. And his wonderful narrative of the birth of Jesus and all the events uh, that surround Jesus' birth and then um, his childhood. Luke, of course, is the only uh, gospel that tells us anything about Jesus' childhood beyond the birth. Mark doesn't refer to his earlier life before the baptism at all. And John begins with his baptism after the wonderful prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Jesus appears as John is baptizing at the River Jordan. Matthew tells his birth narrative, Luke tells his, but he spins it out in a larger framework so that we understand how Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection fit into the great sweep of God's work uh, through his people, Israel. So after, the bapti after Jesus' circumcision, eight days after his birth, God, the, gospel, the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Joseph and Mary bringing him up to Jerusalem. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought the baby Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Simeon was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested upon him. Now, why was Simeon looking for the consolation of Israel? Because Israel was greatly suffering under the heel of Roman imperial rule. The people were destitute uh, because of the heavy taxation laid upon them. Their religious life was threatened by the growing Hellenism, the, the, the imposition of very different worldviews by an outside power. There was deep trouble in the land of Israel in the time of Jesus. And Simeon was looking for the consolation, the hope, the release of Israel from this great burden. 
It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the one who was anointed to save Israel. Guided by the Spirit, Spirit, Simeon went into the temple, and when Jesus' parents brought him in, he, to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took the baby up in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul as well. So Simeon, perceiving in this infant, eight, nine days old at the most, the presence of God, to see in this vulnerable baby, brought for the rites and rituals of Judaism in the temple, he sees in him, he perceives, he feels, he understands, he grasps, the presence of God coming to us, the Messiah, takes the baby up and blesses the God of Israel. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, to the whole world. That's what gentoo means. It means the whole world. And for glory for your people, Israel. Israel was chosen, in Simeon's mind, and those of Jesus' contemporaries, Israel was chosen not for special privileges, but rather for special responsibility to be a light to the nation, to draw others to the ways of justice and of mercy and of peace given to them by Moses following the exodus from Egypt. Israel is set aside not for a safe place, but for a particular purpose in advancing God's will to the larger world. And Simeon perceives in the baby Jesus, this infant, that presence of God. Now, babies are remarkable, right? They touch us. They open our hearts. They lay wide our spirits by their innocence, their vulnerability, their beauty, that inherent beauty in every child. I've never really seen an ugly baby. the smiles, the cooing. Imagine this eight, nine-day-old infant nestled in his mother's arms as his father does for him the rites and rituals at the temple. And Simeon sees in this particular child something unique. He has been waiting for this revelation. A revelation not to take him out of this world, but a revelation by which God comes into this world. This is one of the defining characteristics of Judaism and then of Christianity. 
that our religion is not intended to help us escape this realm, but is rather to bring to our consciousness the reality that we already live in this life in the presence of God. And so Simeon has this excla exclamation, the glory of your people Israel. Then in verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, who was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Anna was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. And at that moment, as Simeon raised the baby, she came and began to praise God, to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary finished everything required of the law, and they returned to Galilee, to their own home in Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Amen. So Anna has the same instantaneous recognition like Simeon, the goodness, the wonder, and can't help herself but to sing the praises of God and then to share this news, to go about praising God and speaking about the child to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think that the liturgical year provides 12 days of Christmas so that we can meditate upon and come more fully to terms with the remarkable idea that God is coming to us, but not only that God is coming to us, but has come to us in the birth of a child. We sanitize the depiction of all these events, of course, but Jesus is a real child. Mary is a real mother. Joseph is a real father. They're all adjusting in these first eight or nine days to the new reality of their family. Until you have a child, you think you're ready, and then you figure it out. There's a real umbilical cord involved here. There's a real birth, labor, and delivery process. Mary nurses Jesus. He needs to be changed, washed up, cuddled, smiled at. And our bedrock affirmation is that God is present in that moment in a unique way.
the complete and utter vulnerability of God, the laying naked of God to the ravages of the world. So rather than standing apart or aloof, God enters fully into our common human condition. God comes to us and shares our common lot. The child grew, became filled with wisdom, and grew in stature, just like any other child, any other girl, any other boy. So here we are at the beginning of a new year. It's a good time to think about the end of times, isn't it? Not just the beginning. Every beginning entails an ending, and every beginning points us. Where are we going? What is our purpose? What is our end? I want to share with you a few thoughts uh, from Father Richard Rohr, um, the Franciscan priest who is a, a great spiritual mentor to me and to others in our congregation through his daily devotions, which we can read on the internet. And this past Friday, working with the wisdom of his friend and fellow teacher, Brian McLaren, he talked about the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which is not a book that lays out some kind of blueprint and code about the end of time, which will somehow lead to the rapture out of here into heaven for a select few, but rather points to the great hope that in the times of great trouble, and Revel, the book of Revelation is written in a time of severe persecution of the early Christians, in the midst of great trouble, like the pandemic, or whatever it is that's testing us, God is coming to us. Richard Rohr writes, <clears throat> God puts us in a world of passing things where everything changes and nothing remains the same. The only thing that does not change is change itself. This is a hard lesson to learn. We say it, but the fact that change is in everything is a very hard lesson to learn because we want is solidity, certainty. It helps us to appreciate that everything, everything is a gift. We didn't create it. We don't deserve it. It will not last. But while we breathe it in, we can enjoy it and know that it is another moment of God, another moment of life. People who take this moment seriously take every moment seriously. And these are the people who are ready. They're already in heaven. And then Brian McLaren writes, that's why Revelation ends with a single word, echoing through the wilderness. It's not wait, 
Simeon and Anna wait. But after they're waiting, what happens? It's not yet. It's not, hold on, someday. It is a word of invitation, a word of welcome, of reception, of hospitality, of possibility. It is a word not of ending, but of new beginning. The one word is come. The Spirit says it to us, and we echo it back. Together with the Spirit, we say it to everyone who is willing, come, Lord Jesus. We are one with God. God is not distant, aloof. God is not to be feared, a harsh judge, a taskmaster. God is compassion and peace, mercy. God is love. The unfolding, dynamic reality of the universe is love. It's the creation of this relationship by which we talk in the words of the Trinity. Not to name a doctrine, but to express the idea that God is essentially relational. We find God at the liminal places between our spirits in the exchange of hearts and minds and lives and love. And so do not fear, for God is with us. Indeed, we are one with God. Amen.